Our sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50. And as I read these verses, you'll notice that there is no verse 44 or verse 46. Uh, that's because they are not in most of the best and oldest manuscripts. If you wonder what they say, they say exactly the same thing as verse 48. That line just gets repeated. So let me read Mark 9, 42 to 50 for us, then I'll pray once more. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Please pray with me once more. Lord, do help us as we come to your word. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, uh, and hearts to respond to your word in faith. Do us good, even through these hard words, by your spirit. Help us to trust that they come from your wisdom, from your love, that they are true, and that they're for our good. Be with us now by your Holy Spirit. Help me to preach. Help us as we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is an appropriate response to sin? What is an appropriate response to sin? Let me pose that question in a few different contexts. What is the appropriate response for you when you are sinned against? Uh, when someone clearly, severely, repeatedly sins against you, when you have done nothing wrong, especially if they show no signs of change, what is the appropriate response for you to make? Or how about this? What is the appropriate response to, for God uh, when he is sinned against? When someone clearly, severely, repeatedly rebels against the God who created them and everything they've ever received. What is the appropriate response for God to sin? Here's one more question. How should you respond to your own sin? When you find that you've done something wrong or that you're in the habit of doing something wrong, or even that there's something deeply wrong with your character. What is an appropriate response to sin? Well, as we begin to consider these questions this morning, I want to suggest that before we give any answers, uh, the first thing we need to do is to recuse 
ourselves as judges. Uh, We need to recognize that we personally are actually not in the best place to render a verdict on these kinds of questions. So in the United States court system, when a judge is asked to hear a case uh, in which he has a conflict of interests, he or she has a conflict of interests, uh, it's considered the right thing to do for that judge to recuse him or herself or to allow someone else to render the verdict. So, for example, in 1996, a case came before the Supreme Court involving the Virginia Military Institute. And at that time, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas had a son enrolled at the Virginia Military Institute. And so, appropriately, Justice Thomas recused himself from that case because he saw that he had a conflict of interests. He might not have seen things the most clearly because of his son's attendance at the school. Well, friends, when it comes to questions involving sin, we need to realize that as sinners, we have a conflict of interests, and we're not the most reliable judges to pronounce what sin deserves. As we consider in this passage how God responds to sin and how he calls us to respond to sin, We need to remember that our intuitions, our feelings, are not always the most trustworthy guide. I'm not aware of any governments anywhere that have a choose-your-own-sentence policy for convicted criminals. If we set ourselves up as the ones with the right to decide what sin deserves, how God should respond to our sin against Him, we're probably not going to do a very good job. So instead of polling our intuitions, instead of searching our inner feelings, this morning we're going to do what we do every Sunday morning, which is to listen to the words of the living God who is true. It is especially important that we listen to what God's word has to say about sin. If there were a judge who saw sin more clearly than anyone, who had seen the effects of sin unfold for thousands of years, if there was a judge who was always perfectly righteous, who never had a conflict of interest with his desire to do what is right, if there were such a judge, isn't it clear that he would be in a position to tell us what the right response to sin is. Friends, the claim of the Bible is that there is such a judge and that he's spoken to us in his word and particularly through his son, Jesus. Let's turn now to consider what he has to say uh, this morning. As we walk through our sermon text, here's what I want us to do. Uh, First, I want us to see what God's response to sin is. What does this passage show us about God's response to sin? Uh, And then second, I want us to see what Jesus calls us to do in response to sin. So first, what, what do we see in this passage about God's response to sin? Well, the primary thing that we see in the passage is that God's response to sin is hell. If you believe in Jesus... You have to believe in hell. 
There are few things that Jesus taught more clearly than the reality of hell as an eternal place of punishment for sin after death. If you tell me, oh, I, I believe in Jesus, I follow Jesus, I just, I just don't buy the whole hell thing. What you're saying is, I believe in Jesus, but I'm just not into listening to Jesus when what he says isn't what I want. And friend, that throws doubt on the question of whether you do believe Jesus. Jesus mentions hell three times in our passage. Each time hell is mentioned very clearly as the opposite of eternal life. So look there, for example, in verse 47. Jesus says, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. From Jesus' words, it's very clear that being thrown into hell is the alternative and the opposite of entering the kingdom of God. Remember, as we've studied through Mark's gospel, we've seen that Jesus inaugurates or installs God's kingdom at his first coming. When Jesus shows up, the kingdom of God is at hand. And between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, the the kingdom of God is growing and spreading throughout the earth like a mustard seed. Do you remember that as we've walked through the gospel of Mark, as we've seen Jesus' miracles, the mercy that he shows through his miracles, those miracles are previews of what Jesus' kingdom will be like when he comes back to consummate his kingdom. When you see Jesus performing miracles of mercy, you are getting previews of eternal life in God's kingdom. When Jesus banishes Satan, when Jesus forgives sins, when Jesus imparts peace, when Jesus heals and restores, when Jesus provides abundant food, when Jesus shows that he is the good shepherd, when he calms the storm, Jesus is showing us what eternal life in God's kingdom will be like. And our passage makes very clear that the opposite of that is hell. Uh, The word that Jesus uses that gets translated hell is literally the Greek word Gehenna or Gehenom, the valley of Hinnom. Uh, So some sources tell us that Gehenna or the valley of Hinnom was a literal trash dump outside of the city of Jerusalem to the southwest uh, where trash Uh, And dead bodies of animals and sometimes of criminals uh, were often dumped and burned. So the idea was that in Gehenna, the fire never quite went out. And the worms found perpetual supply of food. That seems to be why Jesus mentions unquenchable fire in verse 43. In verse 48, he speaks about hell as the place where their worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched. So Jesus is following Jewish tradition in using Gehenna, this burning worm-infested trash dump, as the symbolic name for hell, for the dwelling place of those who die in sin. There in verse 48, where Jesus says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, you see that it's in quotes. 
Uh, That's because Jesus is quoting from our Old Testament reading in Isaiah 66, which pictures God's final judgment as his coming to Jerusalem. And it pictures his final judgment on sin as a pile of dead enemy soldier bodies burning outside the city. Friends, what does it tell us about hell that Jesus' image for hell is dwelling forever in a fiery garbage dump full of never-dying worms outside the joy and life of the city of God? Some people point, point out the fact that the worm and the fire are probably images. That's true, but friend, we, we can't draw any comfort for that from that. What are they images of? Jesus clearly teaches that hell is real. And he also teaches that the reason hell is real is because it is God's judicial response to sin. Jesus says three times in this passage that hell is the consequence of sin that is not dealt with. We'll come to this later in the sermon. Jesus contrasts dealing with sin on the one hand with going to hell on the other. Hell is not a metaphor for things being really bad in this life. Hell is not a place where irreligious people go to party after they die. Hell is not the psychological state of people while they're doing wrong. Hell is a destination that people go after the day of judgment. This is how our statement of faith summarizes what the Bible teaches about hell. It says, we believe that the end of the world is approaching. At the last day, Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead from the grave to final retribution. That a solemn separation will then take place. That the wicked will be adjudged to endless punishment and the righteous to endless joy. And that this judgment will fix forever the final state of men in heaven or hell on principles of righteousness. And friends, notice that last phrase, on principles of righteousness. Hell is not the product of cruelty. Hell is real because God is just. Hell is the justly deserved penalty for sin. The Bible helps us understand this in a variety of ways. Let me give you just three ways that the Bible helps us to see something of the justice of hell. Three ways. Uh, One way the Bible helps us understand the justice of hell is by showing us that hell is, in one sense, what sin asks for. The Bible reveals that God himself is the source of all life and goodness and joy and peace. The Bible describes God as the one who gives to all men life and breath and everything. And fundamentally, sin is a rejection of that God, a running away from him, a giving of the finger to him. So if you do not want God, then on the day of judgment, God will say to you, have it your way. If you reject the light, you will be granted to live in the darkness. In the book of 2 Thessalonians, the apostle Paul speaks about hell as a separation from God. 
He says that those who don't trust Christ will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Hell is just because it is the separation from God that sin asks for. The second way the Bible helps us understand the justice of hell is by reminding us that sin always, even in this life, leads to death and misery. Think about just the first four chapters of the Bible. Before Adam and Eve sinned, they enjoyed peace on all sides. Peace with God. Peace with one another. Peace with creation. When Adam and Eve sin, they sour everything that God had made. They accuse one another. They're ashamed. They're afraid. They run from God. They bring curse and thorns and thistles into the world. One of their children brutally murders the other child. That's before God comes in judgment. That's sin unfolding as God's judgment is what the DNA of sin does. Friend, read the history of mankind recorded in the Bible or just pick up an honest history book and you will find that human sin has already brought untold misery in the world. The Bible helps us see that hell is just by showing us that sin has in its DNA the seeds of death and misery. And hell is where that trajectory leads. There's one third way that the Bible helps us understand the justice of hell. And it's by telling us very plainly that God is personally angry about sin. He is personally and rightly angry about sin. So sometimes Christians take those first two truths. Sin is, uh, hell is separation from God and, and sin has in its DNA the, the suffering that it produces in itself. Uh, and we try to put distance between God and hell. Uh, so some Christians will say things like, God is uh, giving you nothing but yourself for all of eternity in hell. Right? That, that helps us feel better because we don't like the fact that God would be angry at sin. Friends, hell is not nothing but yourself for all of eternity. The God of the Bible is not shy about the fact that he personally hates sin. It angers him and it should. According to Jesus, notwithstanding God's astonishing kindness and patience and generosity and love, God's anger towards sinners who stubbornly side with sin and against him is hot and terrible. And hell is where that anger dwells after the day of judgment. And this, this is how the world works. If you love, you will be angry. If you love someone, you will be angry when they're wronged. If God loves everyone you've ever wronged, he's angry that you've wronged them. If God the Father loves with a perfect and eternal love God the Son and his glory, 
And the Holy Spirit is all over that love between the Son and the Father. Then it is right that God would be angry at the sinners who spew hatred at him and defy his glory. In Jeremiah 17, 4, God says this about his opposition to sin. He says, in my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Friends, I I realize that it's not cool and that it's not comfortable uh, to talk about these things. But God is not embarrassed about them. He, He thinks we need to know them. That's why they're all over his word. Hell is not a skeleton in God's closet for which we need to apologize. Not every doctrine is taught with equal frequency in every part of the Bible. For example, the doctrine of justification is much more present in the letters of Paul than in Proverbs. Do you know what part of the Bible talks the most about hell? Do you know what person in the Bible talks the most about hell? By far, Jesus Christ, the man of compassion the savior of sinners who is gentle and lowly, who doesn't break a bruised reed, who doesn't quench a smoldering wick. That Jesus loves us so much that he talks often and vividly about hell. And this is why hell is so terrible. We should want to avoid it at all costs. Jesus makes this point repeatedly. Uh, Notice how many times that word better appears in our passage four times. In verse 42, Jesus says that death by drowning is better than hell. In verses 43 and 45, he says cutting off a limb is better than hell. And that's because hell doesn't have a happy ending. Uh, The Bible doesn't teach that people reside in hell for a little while and then are let back into heaven. Hell has no happy ending. And friends, if this brings us sadness, that's how we know that we've understood it. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 9 that he had deep sorrow and unceasing anguish when he thought about this. His friends, his kinsmen who were headed for hell. Friends, I would encourage you never to joke about hell. The the way God talks about it does not leave me with the impression that we're free to be flippant about it. We joke with things to become more comfortable with them. I don't think we need to become more comfortable with the idea of hell. God's response to sin is hell. It is right and it is sad. A Christian, let me ask you, does hell feature in your picture of the world? Does hell shape your thinking in any way? Do you, do you see people who don't know Jesus as headed for hell? There are so many things in the Christian life that won't make sense to you unless you believe in hell. Church discipline? Why would we ever practice something so narrow and bigoted as church discipline unless it is a loving way of warning someone about hell? Being a missionary? Why would you ever do that? So uncomfortable, so potentially offensive to the people you're going to be a missionary to. Why would you ever do that if hell is not real? 
When professing Christians reject what God's word has to say about hell, uh, history shows they're not far from rejecting much else uh, that the Bible has to say. Deciding that we know the appropriate response to sin better than God uh, is a first step into serious error. So that's our first point. What is God's response to sin? God is just and righteous, and his response to sin is hell. Uh, But before we move on, there's one more thing I need to say. And it's this, the sermon passage this morning is from Mark chapter 9. Where is Jesus in Mark chapter 9? He's on his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross as a substitute to save sinners from hell. Friends, listen, God has made another response to sin. And it's this, God so loved the world, the world that deserved hell, that he gave his only son to die on a cross under his own just wrath, so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Friend, if you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear this. God sent his son, Jesus, to save everyone who will trust in him from hell. That is the best news I could possibly announce this morning. And it's true. It's true. Friend, if you have questions about how that news can be true for you, please don't leave here without speaking with someone about it. Christian, I I realize this doesn't make the hard things in your life easy. It doesn't make our problems go away. But we need to remember that the big picture is that Jesus has saved us into his kingdom for eternity. That is such an anchor for our souls. That is such a perspective that we need. What is God's response to sin? Well, we might say it like this. God's response to sin is always hell. Either we suffer hell for ourselves as the just penalty for our sin, or Jesus takes it for us by his great mercy. That's our first point this morning, God's response to sin. Well, if God's response to sin is hell, what should ours be? How should we respond to sin? Very simply, we must turn from sin urgently. We must turn from sin urgently. Here Jesus is speaking, uh, it seems, primarily to those who have trusted in him, who are not trusting in their obedience to save them, but in him to save them from sin. He's teaching them how to respond to sin as they see it. Or perhaps he's speaking to those who are kept from responding to him by their sin. He says we must turn from sin urgently. Four times in our passage, we see the phrase cause to sin. They're in verse 42, 43, 45, and 47. Uh, In each case, the word that Jesus uses is not the ordinary word for sin. Uh, It's actually the Greek word skandalizo, which means to ensnare. This word is almost always translated as to stumble or to cause to stumble. So remember, in this section of Mark's gospel, Jesus and his disciples are on the way to Jerusalem, uh, and Jesus is teaching us about how to follow him on the way as his disciples. 
So when Jesus says cause to sin or cause to stumble, I think specifically he's talking about being entangled in, a, in sin in a way that drags you off the path, in a way that moves you to stray from Jesus. In these verses, Jesus gives three warnings about sin or stumbling. And I want these three types of warnings to be our, our outline as we just walk through the passage briefly through this second run. Jesus gives three warnings about sin as he urges us to turn from it. The first warning uh, is against anyone who would influence others to sin or to stumble, to stray from Christ. There in verse 42, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That might seem at first like Jesus is speaking about children when he mentions little ones, Uh, but most Bible scholars think that uh, little ones who believe in me is just a way that Jesus refers to his disciples. Uh, That's as consistent with what Jesus says elsewhere. They're called little ones because they come to Jesus in childlike faith. And notice Jesus is issuing this warning in verse 42 to whoever, whoever, a friend, whoever you are, Jesus gives the sternest possible warning against tempting anyone away from following Jesus. I don't think Jesus is so much talking about, you know, you're in a conversation with someone and you accidentally say something you shouldn't and you lead them to say something you shouldn't and then you repent. I don't think Jesus is saying, it would be better if you had drowned than said that. I think he's talking about leading others away from Jesus. So friend, if you draw people away from Jesus, and by the way, you can do that through careless sins of speech, through clever sounding arguments, If you draw people away from Jesus through peer pressure or through persecution or through humor or through ridicule and satire or through tempting other people to sin with you or through dragging someone else into sin. Or if you draw people away from Jesus by claiming to teach about the Bible, but actually lying about the Bible telling people it's not God's word, telling people that there, there is no hell, that you don't have to believe in Jesus Or if you draw people away from Jesus by professing to be a Christian, but your flagrant hypocrisy makes Christianity unbelievable. Listen, Jesus says clearly, drowning right now would be better than the fate that awaits you. And the implied command for us is clear. Turn away from anything that would draw others away from Jesus. Turn away from whatever would lead others to stumble, to be ensnared in sin. What's the, what's the principle behind what Jesus is saying here? That Jesus is calling us to be mindful of our spiritual influence on others. Right? The Bible teaches that one of the ways that people fall away is through slowly drifting into lukewarm and worldliness. Friend, ask yourself, does my spiritual influence on others entice them to be lukewarm about Jesus and worldly? Brothers and sisters, what kind of influence do you have on the people around you spiritually? Is your circle, your family, your church, is it a more or less spiritually healthy place because of your influence? Jesus wants us to consider that. 
Jesus warns us in this first warning against influencing others to stumble or to stray from Christ. The second warning Jesus issues in this passage is against making peace with sin in our own lives. That's the second warning from verses 43 to 48. The teaching of the Bible about sin and the life of the believer is very nuanced. Uh, On the one hand, the Bible says that until Christians die or Jesus comes back, they will struggle with sin. You should not expect to be completely free from sin in this life. On the other hand, the Bible insists that Christians should and must and will, if they are saved, wage the strongest possible war against sin while they're in this life. Faith in Jesus and sin are the bitterest of enemies. They do not coexist happily. And in the end, one will kill the other. One will kill the other. John Owen, there are certain lines throughout church history that were uttered that they're not in the Bible. They're not God's word, but they're so helpful. Remember John Owen's line, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Let me show you this doctrine of sin in the Bible. Turn with me to the book of First John. It should be near the end of your Bible. If you turn to the very end, that's Revelation. Turn back one book, that's Jude. And then a little bit back, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. Turn to 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. John writes there, If we, we Christians, say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Right, John's very clear. If you say, oh, I'm done with sin, I don't sin anymore, you're lying to yourself. All Christians continue to struggle with sin. Now, turn over to 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. 1 John 3, 9. John says, No one born of God, or who's become a Christian, makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Because he has been born of God. Even in the absolute way that John makes these statements, he wants us to feel the strongest possible tension between the sin that still dwells in us and the new life that God has given us when we've come in Jesus. New life doesn't sin. And so, John says, Christians don't make sin their practice. When we sin, we turn, we repent, even if we do that 150 times a day, right? Even if God has to discipline us lovingly to keep us turning from sin. No one who is born of God keeps on sinning indefinitely. When Jesus comes back and the new life that's begun to grow in us is brought to its fruition, we won't sin anymore. Let me show you that. Look at 1 John 3, 2. 1 John 3, 2. John says, Beloved, We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Christian, one day when you see Jesus, you will be as free from sin as he is. So what should we do in the meantime? We still have sin It's at war with our new life. One day we'll be perfect. Look at the very next verse, 1 John 3, 3. 
It says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Friends, that, that verse, purifying ourselves in hope of being like Christ because he's given us new life. That's what Jesus is unpacking here in John chapter, I'm sorry, in Mark chapter 9 for the believer. Turn back to Mark with me. Look at verse 43. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 48 again. Jesus is calling us here to wage an uncompromising war against sin. He says, and if your hand causes you to sin or stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus' point is so clear. If there's anything in your life that's ensnaring you in sin, even if it's something so good and so natural as having a hand, having a foot, having an eye, cut it off lest sin kill faith. Kill sin in faith, lest sin kill faith. I think Jesus is using body parts metaphorically here because he knows that sin lives in our hearts and not in our hands. Uh, But they are metaphors with a meaning. If your hand, something you do, or your foot, somewhere you go, or your eye, something you view, causes you to sin, is ensnaring you, making you stumble, Jesus says, cut it off. If a relationship or an activity or a certain location or using a substance or watching a certain show or having unfettered access to a device or a social media platform or anything is ensnaring you in sin, cut it off. Remove it from your life. I remember once I was with a group of Christian college students uh, and we were talking about pornography And pornography is not the unforgivable sin. Jesus can forgive and cleanse people who struggle with pornography. And we need to talk about it. I remember the leader of this group asked, for those of you who have struggled with pornography, what has helped you uh, to become disentangled, to become unensnared from that sin? And I remember there was a, a guy in that group who was kind of a stoical guy. He was not the kind of guy to raise his hand, but his hand shot up. And he said, I threw my iPod in the campus lake. He was so excited to tell us, right? He cut it off. It's not like he couldn't have gone to get another iPod, right? It's not like his iPod was the only place that porn was available to him. But in Jesus' wisdom, there's something helpful to us, even internally, about making a drastic change at times. If you are deeply ensnared in sin, For others, it's cutting off isolation by talking to someone. It's cutting off anonymity by getting accountability software. One of the greatest resources that Jesus has given to his people in the fight against sin is his people. If if you're wondering, there's there's the thing in my life and I don't know whether my conscience is over tender about it or, or whether it's actually leading me into sin. Friend, talk to a trusted believer. Ask another person full of the Holy Spirit for their counsel. See, speak with an elder. We, that's why we're here. God wants us to help each other fight sin 
to see what needs to be cut off and turned away from. The second warning that Jesus gives is against making peace with sin in our own lives. Third and final warning that Jesus gives in this passage in verses 49 to 50 is a warning against quarreling. It's especially a warning against quarreling with other believers. Jesus makes this point through a series of metaphors involving salt. Look there in verses 49 and 50. Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That's really confusing. 1218, salt, fire, what is going on? Here's what I think Jesus means by these confusing references to salt. Jesus is calling us to be devoted to sin so as to abstain from sinful conflict. I'm sorry. Jesus is calling us to be devoted to God so that we abstain from... Did I say devoted to sin? I'm so sorry. You know better than that. Let me try again. Jesus is calling us to be devoted to God so that we abstain from sinful conflict. To be devoted to God so that we abstain from sinful conflict. Let me explain. So the background to Jesus' comments seems to be the Old Testament sacrificial system. So in Leviticus chapter 2.13, God commanded that whenever his people brought him an offering of any kind, they needed to offer with that offering salt. Jesus has just been talking about avoiding hell fire. And then he says in verse 49, everyone is going to be salted with fire. Everyone is going to be salted with fire. No one escapes fire completely. But the threefold mention of salt seems to indicate that for the believer, the experience of fire, or when we face God's judgment, it's not going to lead to destruction. When we, when the believer is salted with fire, when they come into judgment, their lives are found to be a pleasing, salty sacrifice. The life of the believer is seasoned with the salt, I think, of devotion to God, of viewing one's life as a sacrifice to God. Look what Jesus says there in verse 50. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? At which point all the chemists raise their eyebrows because it's incredibly difficult for sodium chloride to lose its saltiness. But in Jesus' day, uh, the salt that was gathered from the Sea of Galilee was actually a mixture of elements. There was gypsum in the salt. So it was possible for the sodium chloride, the NaCl, to wash out of the salt. So you could literally have unsalty salt. Uh, Jesus is saying it's possible for Uh, Sea of Galilee salt to become unsalty, just like, tragically, it's possible for devotion to God to wane, to get washed away. Think of the parable of the soils, the seed that was sown on rocky ground sprang up and then died when there was suffering. And Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I think he's saying, remember that your life is a sacrifice well-pleasing to God and thereby abstain from quarrels. Brothers and sisters, how many sinful quarrels that we get into could have been avoided by being salty? More devotion to God leads to less quarrels 
and more peace. One commentator writes this. He says, strife is resolved and peace restored when Christians recognize in one another a common commitment to Jesus and the gospel and to the servant's vocation. That, I think, is the salt that Jesus is calling for. Friends, sometimes we need to have conflict. Sometimes we need to register that we disagree or to confront. But before we enter into conflict, we need to be salty. We need to have the salt of the mindset that our lives are a sacrifice to God. We don't go into conflict with our own agenda, but with God's. Jesus says that leads to peace among his people. Let me close with this. That final line, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Friends, can you see the goodness of God and what he's calling us to? These are hard, heavy words about sin and hell. What is God's desire for his people? Peace. On Sundays, after the service, when we're all standing around, talking to each other, enjoying fellowship, especially when there's a a potluck, that's peace. That's what God wants to give us in Jesus. And he knows that sin is the sworn enemy of all such peace. That's why he loves us enough to warn us against it. We need to remember that God speaks these hard words out of love for us, out of a desire for our peace. And we need to remember the peace that Christ has won for us with God through his work. Let's pray now for his help to respond to sin as we should. Let's pray. God, we confess in our hearts we have had a small view of you, a small view of your goodness, a small view of your glory, a small view of your righteousness, and therefore a really small view of sin, a really small view of hell. God, we thank you that Jesus loves us enough to speak so clearly with us. God, we praise you as a God who is good and just, who is opposed to all that's sinful. Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus to die as a substitute that we might be saved. Lord, we pray that you would help each of us to respond by turning urgently from sin For those of us who might not know Jesus, anyone here who might not know Jesus, I pray that they would see that uh, nothing is worth holding on to if it costs them Christ. Lord, would, would they forsake sin, whatever cutting off and gouging out they have to do to come to Jesus. We pray for those of us who know the Lord, uh, that we would be eager and diligent in turning from sin. Lord, I pray that your peace would characterize our lives Uh, and our life together as a church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.